Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. New York in the 1920s was a thriving industrial metropolis. Migrants travelled there from cities in the north and immigrants made their way to Manhattan on ships. The population was nearly 6 million and people flocked to America from all around the world hoping to make their fortune. The native Scottish parents of Peter Manuel were no different and they expected their migration to New York to be a prosperous one. They left their home in Coventry behind and boarded a ship to begin their new life overseas. They had an infant son James who they had left with family members in the UK, hoping to be able to send for him once they had established themselves in their new home. Things were not as easy as the couple had imagined. In 1926 they found out they were expecting a child and in March 1927 their second son, Peter Thomas Anthony Manuel was born. The family of three moved from New York to Detroit, Michigan after the 1929 Wall Street crash, hoping the relocation would improve their prospects. Their luck didn't improve, but they stuck it out until 1933 when they decided to leave America and return to Scotland. They settled in the village of Birkenshaw in North Lanarkshire, which is located east of Glasgow. It isn't known if Peter was even aware of his elder brother James's existence before arriving in Scotland. Upon their return, James moved in with his parents and his younger brother. Five-year-old Peter found it difficult adapting, no longer being the only child. 
School life was equally as hard as Peter's thick American accent made him a target for bullying. After a couple of years, he was upset further when his parents had a third child, Teresa. By the time Peter was ten, his behaviour was out of control and the court ordered him to be placed in an approved school, which was a residential institution for juveniles that had committed petty crimes. The approved schools were quite easy to escape from, so Peter would abscond in the night to commit crime after crime, but every time he did, he was caught and moved to a new approved school in a different part of the country. Despite his age, his criminal record was getting lengthy. He committed offences in various towns and cities, including Coventry, Cambridge, Southport, Manchester and Hull. His most repeated crimes were listed as theft and burglary. The seriousness of his criminal activity escalated after a couple of years when the charge of unlawful wounding was added to his record. Now 15 years old, late one night, he again escaped from his room at the approved school he was staying in. He sneaked into the room of a female night worker and woke her up by striking her on the head with a hammer. In 1946, his record states that he attacked and ravished a woman and then went on to commit at least two further sexual assaults on women in Glasgow. After he committed over 45 logged criminal acts, this was the first time Peter was charged and sentenced as an adult. He received eight years to be served at Peterhead, which had a reputation for being Scotland's toughest prison. While serving time, Fellow inmates described him as arrogant and boastful. He told lies, declaring he was in prison for blowing safes, not the rape charge he was detained for. He also falsely claimed his father died in the electric chair in America. In 1956, two years after his release, Peter found himself in East Kilbride in Scotland. The area was going through an extensive modernisation with new homes being built in the village to transform the area into a suburban town. Capelrig Farm was a property that was set to be demolished to make way for newly constructed housing, though on January 2nd, 1956, it was still home to the McLaughlin family and their teenage daughters. The girls were visited by their friend Anne Neelands that evening. Anne was 17 and a factory worker. It wasn't unusual for her to pop to the McLaughlins before a night out of dancing to put on some makeup. She snuck there as her father didn't approve of her wearing it. After she had got ready, Anne left by foot to go to the local dance. Her dark hair was curled in the classic 50s style of the day and she wore a red coat. She had planned on going with a date but the young man cancelled when he felt too hungover from drinking at Glasgow's New Year Hogmanay celebrations. That was the last time Anne would be seen alive. Her body was discovered two days later, on January 4th, at East Kilbride Golf Course. Golfers were looking for lost balls when at the fifth tee they saw what looked to be red fabric on the green grass. As they approached, they realised the red fabric was a coat. It was the only piece of clothing worn on the lifeless body of the teenage girl. The police arrived to be confronted with a horrific scene. Anne had been bludgeoned so forcefully the top of her head had been caved in and she had been the victim of a violent sexual assault 
They noted that Anne's low-heeled black shoes were found some distance away with the heels submerged in mud. Police reached the conclusion that Anne lost her shoes whilst fleeing from her attacker. They were found near the end of the road leading to the McLaughlin's farm. Guilt played the McLaughlin girls and even many years after Anne's murder, they still imagine her screaming for help that night, but her cries were unanswered. During the period of Anne's murder, Peter Manuel was working for the gas board. He was on the list of people to be interviewed by police due to his history of rape and violent assaults. When the police caught up with him at work, they queried him about the scratches on his face and Peter just brushed it off, explaining he had been in a town brawl over the new year. He denied having any knowledge about the murder of Anne, but he offered some information regarding a gas maintenance worker's hut that had been broken into a few days before. It was located near the crime scene. Peter explained a pair of Wellington boots and a handle of a pickaxe had been stolen. After a thorough search of the grounds, the pickaxe handle was discovered and it was determined that it was the weapon used to kill Anne. The press got wind of who tipped off the police and a reporter and photographer went to see Peter. Ronnie Burgess, the photographer, later recounts his meeting with Peter Manuel. His first impression was that Peter was handsome, short in stature at only five foot four, with dark, dark eyes. When Ronnie asked to take his photograph, Peter snapped, no pictures. But Ronnie went ahead and took his picture anyway. It's a photograph most commonly used of Peter Manuel smiling in a checkered shirt with a strand of his dark hair falling on his face. With the flash of the bulb, Peter was furious and told Ronnie, I'll get you for that. A policeman asked him if he was threatening Ronnie. Peter retorted, no, I'm promising him. The next day, Peter Manuel went to the office where Ronnie Burgess worked. Luckily for Ronnie, he wasn't around, and the next time he would see Peter Manuel would be in a courtroom in Glasgow a couple of years later. Suspicions, of course, were pointed at Peter. He had led the police to the weapon that killed Anne and worked for the company the pickaxe was stolen from. However, Peter Manuel had an alibi. His father claimed he was at home with him on the evening of Anne's murder. With no evidence against Peter and no other potential leads, no arrests were made and the case went cold. William Watt, his wife Marion and their 16-year-old daughter Vivian had been living in their home for just two months when Peter Manuel struck. The bungalow, a one-story house in the middle-class area of High Burnside on the outskirts of Glasgow, was seen as a step up and a safe area. The Watts family had managed to afford the new home as they owned a successful bakery business called Denon Bakeries on London Road in Glasgow. In September 1956, William Watt went for a weekend fishing trip to Argyle while Marion and Vivian were joined at home by Marion's sister Margaret Brown. Sunday rolled around and Vivian spent the day like any other teenager of that time travelling to Glasgow with a friend and next-door neighbour, Diana Valenti, and they both window-shopped. After they had returned, they spent the evening in Vivian's room listening to the hit parade on Radio Luxembourg. Diana left around 11.45pm, and Vivian, her mother, and her auntie went to bed. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Peter Manuel was skilled at breaking into houses, and in the early hours of the morning, he crept up to the Watts home and shattered a thin pane of glass in the front door. The three women slept oblivious inside. He entered Marion's bedroom first and shot her in the head with a revolver. He fired two shots into Margaret, who was sleeping next to her sister, one in her head and one in her torso. The two shots could likely mean Margaret moved when she was awoken by the gunshot that killed her sister, making it necessary for Peter to administer the second fatal shot to her head. He pulled up Marion's nightdress and ripped Margaret's pyjama bottoms before making his way to Vivian's room. The teenager was awoken by the loud bangs from the gunshots. When Peter entered the room, Vivian put up a struggle, but he managed to overpower the girl, battering her on the head and then shooting her. Her hands were tied behind her back, and her pyjama bottoms were ripped off. 
Peter smoked a cigarette before stubbing it out on the carpet, covered the three women with bedsheets, and calmly left the property. The house fell silent, and no suspicions were raised until the morning at 8.45am when the Watts domestic help, Mrs. Helen Collison, arrived. There was no answer after knocking the front door, and Mrs. Collison then noticed a pane of glass in the front door was broken. She ran next door to tell the neighbour, Mrs. Valente, the mother of Vivian's friend, Deanna. Both women rushed back to the Watts' home, where they encountered the postman. They decided to enter the property by putting a hand through the broken glass panel and unlock the door from the inside. When the victims were discovered, Vivian was found to be alive despite her severe injuries, but tragically she lost her life before emergency services could get to her. When the police arrived, they felt the murders were linked to a burglary that had occurred down the street at number 18 a couple of days prior. The home, owned by retired sisters Margaret and Mary Martin, had been broken into, but very little was stolen. The culprit seemed to get a kick from leaving the house in disarray. He used his boots to smear mud over the beds, emptied drawers and used a cigarette to burn holes in the carpet. He stole a pair of nylon stockings which he used to bind the hands of Vivian Watt two days later. Peter was well known to police for breaking into houses and both the Watts murder and the Martin incident bore hallmarks that police believe pointed to him. A search warrant was issued for his home to try and locate the 38 Webley revolver used in the slayings. Peter complained continuously throughout the search, citing police harassment and stuck firmly to his claim he had nothing to do with the murders. No evidence was unearthed during the search, but little did police know that the revolver had already been tossed into the River Clyde. Their attention was now directed to William Watt. He didn't act the way people expected for a man who lost his wife, child and sister-in-law in a brutal murder. He was quiet and appeared to be void of emotion. Three days after the funeral of his family, the decision was made to arrest William Watt. A crowd of at least 200 people congregated outside of the courtroom to hurl abuse and catch a glimpse of the monster that had killed his family. William's court appearance was brief, and he stayed silent throughout. Barlini Prison would be his home until his trial. The police solely focused their attention on getting evidence to convict William Watt. They discovered he had been unfaithful to his wife Marion on numerous occasions, and his infidelity further convinced both the law enforcement and the public he was a sinful man that was capable and now had motive to wipe out his family. It was believed that William had driven home from his fishing trip, covering a distance of 180 miles, murdered his family and returned to the hotel in time for breakfast. However, conflicting evidence began to accumulate. A waitress at the hotel claimed to have seen William standing in the window of his hotel room at 1am, and another witness claimed she saw him outside at 8.10am, scraping frost from his car windshield. To prove it was possible, a policeman took the journey from the hotel to the Watts home and back, leaving time to fit the sleighing in between. There were, however, significant errors with this test, as a Ford Zephyr was used and William drove a Vauxhall Velux. 
there was a reported sighting of someone who matched William's description on the ferry at 3am, yet the policeman drove a route that didn't include the ferry. There were also no sightings of William at any gas stations on the way, any evidence he used a gas can, and his tank was full. If the witness's account of seeing him clearing ice from his car at 10 past 8am were true, this would indicate that the car hadn't been used all night. These and other discrepancies were brought up when William hired renowned solicitor Lawrence Dowdle. In the meantime, William Watt was the talk of Barlini Prison, and his infamy had disgruntled a new inmate, Peter Manuel. Coincidentally, subsequent to William's arrival, Peter was sent to the same prison for breaking and entering. After 67 days, Lawrence Dowdle managed to secure William Watt's release as there wasn't any solid evidence to keep him incarcerated. Now William had left, Peter's frustration at someone else gaining the notoriety for a crime he committed ate away at him. When he was due for release, he couldn't help but inject himself into the case and wrote to the solicitor on November 27th, 1957. The letter states, Dear Mr Dowdle, on Saturday the 30th, I am due for liberation. I would like you to phone my house on Saturday at 9am sharp. I would like to see you Saturday evening and a phone at the time I suggested would be most suitable to me to arrange a meeting. The subject matter of this interview you can put down to unfinished business concerning a party who was to my certain knowledge doubtedly unfortunate. Hoping to hear from you at the suggested time above, I remain yours sincerely, signed Peter Manuel. The goal of the letter and then the call was to arrange a meeting with William Watt to discuss the case. Peter claimed that he had information and wanted to meet William alone. Since his release, William had been trying to find out who killed his family and frequented pubs in Glasgow that were known hangouts for criminals. He was trying to trace where the gun was brought from and keep his ear to the ground for new information. So when Peter Manuel approached him, he was desperate for any information, so agreed to the meeting. William insisted on bringing his solicitor, and cockier than ever, Peter agreed. The three met at the Whitehall restaurant in Glasgow. Full of bravado, Peter said an associate of his, which he didn't name, was responsible for the crime. He relayed this apparent second-hand information, and as he spoke, he revealed a description of the Watts' home, detailing how Margaret had been shot twice. His taunting continued when he bizarrely showed William a picture of his first victim, Anne Neelands, and asked him if he knew her. William said he didn't, and then Peter proceeded to tear the photograph to pieces. Obviously, his behaviour aroused deep suspicions in William Watt and Lawrence Dowdle. Peter repeated that he just wanted to help, but his explanation seemed dubious, as he was likely trying to antagonise a grieving and desperate William. William and Lawrence supposed that the information he was taunting them with was directly lifted from newspaper articles. Lawrence Dowdle informed the police, but once again Peter wasn't charged, as there was no physical evidence. Peter Manuel was a free man that would ultimately go on to murder at least five more people. Peter Manuel's fifth murder victim is thought to be Northumbrian taxi driver Sidney John Dunn, who was in the wrong place at the wrong time on December 8th, 1957. Towards the end of his shift, 
36-year-old Sydney picked up Peter at Newcastle Central Station. Information pieced together after Peter's death shows that at the time he was looking for employment in the northeast. Hours after he took his last cab fare, Sydney Dunn was found metres away from his taxi with a slit throat and a shot to the back of the head. Twenty days after the murder of Sydney Dunn, 17-year-old Isabel Cook disappeared after leaving a Mount Vernon home. She walked to meet her boyfriend at the main street of Uddingston so they could then walk to the dance together at the local grammar school. Her boyfriend Douglas waited for her, but she never arrived. The next day, when the daughter hadn't returned home, Isabel's parents called the police. A search was arranged promptly, and as soon as her underwear was found, the newspapers voiced their view that she had been a victim of murder, and the police launched a nationwide hunt for the teenager. They received a tip, saying that a body had been disposed of in a railway carriage, though it became evident this was a false lead after a search was carried out and nothing was found. 11-year-old David Pirrett went to visit his friend Michael Smart on January 3, 1958. He was hoping the Smart family had returned after visiting Doris Smart's parents on the Scottish border. David had visited before and noticed the curtains were closed, but today they were open, so he was hopeful they had come home. There was no response when he knocked at the door. The Smart family, Peter, Doris and their 11-year-old son Michael, were lying in their beds, having been murdered days before. On New Year's Eve, the Smarts decided to scrap possible plans of celebrating with friends at Dumbuck Hotel in Dumbarton or visiting Doris's parents. They instead stocked up on a few bottles of whiskey which Peter got from a pub not far from his house in Uddingston. He stayed at the pub, having a few drinks until it closed its doors at 10 o'clock. When he got home, Peter and Doris hosted friends and neighbours to bring in the new year. The last guest left at 2.30am. Smarts went to bed and the house fell silent. Sometime in the next couple of hours, Peter gained access to the home. He entered the main bedroom where Doris and Peter Smarts slept and shot them both in the head. Can only imagine the sound would have woken up Michael. He must have been too afraid to move as when his body was later discovered, he was also lying in bed. Peter Manuel didn't flee the murder scene. In fact, he made himself at home consuming the Smart's festive food, taking their savings, driving their car, and even feeding the family's pet cat. He returned to the house on several occasions over the next six days before the Smarts were discovered. A neighbour across the street also later told police that the curtains had been opened and closed many times, and one day a window had been left ajar. The neighbour found a window being opened slightly strange, as it was early January in Scotland, and temperatures often hit freezing. It was probable that Peter opened the window to dilute the smell of decaying bodies. Before the family were reported missing, Peter's arrogance was quite apparent. While using the Smart's car, he gave a lift to a police officer who was involved in the search for Isabel Cook. He told him that he thought the police were looking in the wrong places for the missing teenager. It was only on January 6th when Peter Smart was due back at work the alarm was raised. Two of his work colleagues accompanied a police constable to the Smart's home, but there was no sign of a break-in. The constable decided to gain entry by kicking the back door. They were met with a stench, and then the gruesome scene of a family slain in their beds. 
Later that day, the smart's car was found abandoned a few miles away. The house and the area surrounding was combed for evidence. It was hoped the murder weapon had been discarded in the long grass surrounding the property. Unfortunately, no evidence was retrieved and the Lanarkshire police couldn't cope with the spree of murders, so detectives from Glasgow were brought in. It was thought there was a leak in the police force as the press started to link the murders of the Smart family to the killings of Anne Neelands, the Watt family and Isabel Cook. Looking back through all the information they had, one name kept coming up. Peter Manuel. A search warrant was issued on January 14th for the home he shared with his father in Birkenshaw. Stolen items from previous house burglaries were uncovered and more damningly, £35 in sequential notes that were found to be withdrawn by Peter Smart on the morning of the murders. Both Peter and his father were arrested and taken to the police station. Knowing how much Peter loved to talk and show off, he was left in his cell alone for a few hours. No communication was made with him and by the time he was collected for an interview, he was eager to talk. He offered a confession, providing his father was released from custody and he could come clean to both of his parents first. To support his confession, he led detectives to the place at Burnt Broom Farm, Nuddingston, where he said he had buried Isabel. The detectives were beginning to suspect Peter was just playing another one of his games when they hadn't located a body. They paused, and Peter told the chief detective, I think you're standing on her. Sure enough, Isabel Cook's half-naked body was recovered in a shallow grave. The guns, a Webley revolver and a Beretta automatic that were used in the murders were recovered by divers in the River Clyde. In this interview, with a psychologist who was assessing his mental health, Peter showed to have specialist knowledge of how the weapons worked. I went down to this house on a Thursday and uh, I found this and I set my eyes up and, I, and I, I made the move with me and then I went out. You were out of the smart house? Yes, and I, I took the car. I thought that was a good move. I said, see, this car dump it. That looks as though somebody shot him and went away in the car. I see this man's reconstructed a crime. I said, he told me I went into the house and I didn't wait in these people because I shot him with an automatic pistol like that. Bang, bang, quick. I said, he's got a barretta that's defective. I said, there's a homemade fan pin in it. I said, the, the magazine, the springs are open. I said, the only way you can load it is put the safety catch on. Pull back the, the, the carriage, the whole carriage, and it catches in the safety catch, and you've got to put a bullet up a spout, a little short barrel. And then you let this thing back very carefully because if you look at it, if you just put the safety off it, it goes off. You lift it carefully, then you can fire it. We can't stand at somebody's house, load a gun like that, shoot, we'll say, shoot a man, go mm. down a quiet bedroom, and then go off to a spot of an area without waking somebody up. I mean, if you're lying with your wife or your wife's lying here and somebody fired a gun, spent time in his cell planning for his trial. It later emerged that he wrote poems about the murders, like this one. I'm Peter Anthony Manuel, in Barlini jail I lie, awaiting on a high court jury to sentence me to die. I know the jury's verdict will sentence me to death, for I am Peter Anthony Manuel, the foulest beast on earth. I know you read your papers and shall read about my crime. I have not caused the death of one, but have caused the death of nine. I'm looking for not sympathy, for don't you realise, I'm Peter Anthony Manuel, a reptile in disguise. 
I murdered Isabel Cook and young Anne Needlands too, shot the Watts and shot the Smarts, and Sidney Dunn I slew. I did these deeds without a doubt, my guilt was found by law. I'm Peter Anthony Manuel, the Rat of Birkenshaw. I wonder who the hangman is, since Pierre Point's gone away, but I know that I shall meet him on that ill-fated day. That day I'll get breakfast, I know I'll get no lunch, for the law must have its pound of flesh, and they can hang me only once. And when I'm dead they'll bury me in a pit of burning lime, but my name will live forevermore in the story book of crime. And when they write my epitaph, these words they shall be seen, here lies Peter Anthony Manuel, Scotland's Frankenstein. On May 12th, 1958, 31-year-old Peter Manuel went to trial at Glasgow's High Court for the murder of eight people. A sentence of hanging could be passed, even if he was found guilty of just one. So desperate were people to get a seat on the public benches for the trial of the infamous Beast of Birkenshaw, they queued outside the court overnight. When the court was full, people waited outside, devouring any piece of second-hand information they got from the onlookers inside. The evidence was stacked against him, but despite this, Peter chose to sack his lawyers and represent himself. He reveled in the spotlight and conducted his defence like it was from a courtroom scene on TV. He chose to plead not guilty, claiming he was coerced into confessing by police to release his father from custody. Due to the stress and graphic detail of the case, William Watt, whose wife and daughter were murdered, collapsed before he was removed from the court on a stretcher. Police provided evidence including the stolen banknotes, written confessions and the fact Peter led them to the grave of Isabel Cook. Peter Manuel's defence was that he couldn't have killed Isabel Cook as he was at the cinema that night and as for the Smarts, he had known them for years. He was allegedly asked by Peter Smart to buy him a gun. He did and when he visited the Smarts' home later, he discovered what he guessed was a murder-suicide. Peter hoped that he could charm the jury into acquitting him, but after a 12-day trial, he was found guilty on seven counts of murder. Despite his confession, no further evidence could be put forward in the case of Anne Neelands. The judge, Lord Cameron, put on his black cap and told Peter he would hang by the neck until he was dead. So where are we now? Peter Manuel's execution was scheduled for Friday, July 11th, 1958. Just before 8am, Peter was met at his Barlini cell by hangman Harry Allen. A priest gave him his last rites, then he was taken to the hanging shed. His hands were tied behind his back, a noose fitted around his neck and a white hood to cover his face. The beast of Birkenshaw died at 8.05am. His reported last words were turn up the radio and I'll go quietly. Scotland breathed a sigh of relief besides Peter's family who left a wreath outside of the prison gates. He is buried in an unmarked grave against a wall at D-Block at Barlini Prison. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support They Walk Among Us and receive additional episodes, add free content and other extras, go to patreon.com 
forward slash they walk among us. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.